the field owner says, uh, of the wheat and the weeds that have been planted in his field, let both grow together to harvest. And the harvest is clearly, as it's explained in the following verses, the second coming of Christ and the judgment, the end of the world. And uh, the assertion of the field owner is that uh, uh, he does not desire the weeds to be rooted up. Uh, it gives reasons for that in the parable. He wants the wheat and weeds to grow together. Now, uh, here's the thing. Um, Christians, or Orthodox Christians, of a premillennial and postmillennial stripe have had a really difficult time. Uh, what's the word I want? Practicing the kind of, and believing the kind of balance that Jesus teaches here. Welcome to Grounded. I'm Steve Hartland, pastor at Cornerstone Community Church in Joppa, Maryland. And I have a guest today, somebody I've known for really quite a long time now. And uh, his name is Sam Waldron. Sam, say hi. They're probably seeing you. Hello. All right. And Sam uh, Sam holds a PhD from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He is the president of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, I believe that is still in Owensboro, Kentucky. Am I right? Yes. That's and right. By the way, you're president of Grace Reformed Baptist Church there. Uh, yes, and, and you're at Grace Reformed Baptist Church in Owensboro. You're pastor there. and uh, But back to the seminary, so I would imagine you're president, but you're also what? You teach theology, or do you teach things beyond systematic theology? Primarily systematic theology, but a few other courses occasionally. All right, very good. He's also the author of quite a number of books, including... Uh, this was interesting, came out rather recently. It's on topic with us today. He wrote MacArthur's Millennial Manifesto, A Friendly Response. John MacArthur came out with like a final zing for premillennialism, and uh, Sam wrote A Friendly Response. Prior to that, though, he wrote uh, a book, The End Times Made Simple. I want to recommend that to you if you're interested in today's podcast and you want to figure out, all right, let, I want to read some more about what these gentlemen talked about today. So uh, that is our topic today. We're on the topic of the end times. We're going to briefly summarize what some of the views are and then ask Pastor Stan a pretty, Stan, Sam, a pretty specific question about why are you this and not that? Why do you take this position and not that position? So uh, again, thank you for being here. That is our topic, sir. Do you teach end times? Do you teach eschatology there at the seminary in Owensboro? Do I teach eschatology? I think I've taught my eschatology course like 20 times in the last 15 years. Wow. So, yeah, so not only here at the seminary, but our affiliates in South America. And in fact, I just got back from Kenya teaching at a Trinity Pastors College there. Awesome. So, so yes, I do teach eschatology. <laughs> I, I think it sounds like we could wake you up at 2.30 a.m. and say spit it out, and you would. So good. I, well, I think we came to the right guy. All right, so for our listeners, our, our listeners might not all know that there are some different views that uh, people who are equally Bible-believing, people who hold a high view of Scripture, Scripture is the Word of God, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, sufficient, um, but different views of uh, what the end times hold for us. So I'm just going to outline briefly, and Pastor Sam, you're Dr. Sam, you're the boss here, so you correct me 
after I if, if I don't get this all right. But briefly, there are three main positions. There are sub positions of each one. There are subcategories of them. But there's uh, premillennialism, amillennialism, and postmillennialism. So pre, ah, post. And what what they each talk about is the millennialism is the key there. They each talk about the timing of the coming of Christ relative to the millennium. Premillennialists say Christ comes back before the millennium. Postmillennialists, Christ comes back after the millennium. Amillennialists, and it's probably a misnomer. That's not really the greatest way to describe this. It sounds like we don't believe there is a millennium. Wrong. I'm an amill, and we believe the millennium is now. It's from the first coming to the second coming. That whole time is the millennium talked about in the book of Revelation. And uh, so technically, somebody pointed out to me recently, I wonder what you think of this, Dr. Zam, that actually uh, amillennialism is a form of postmillennialism. We believe Christ comes back after this present millennium. So anyway, we can talk about that. But those are the three main positions. There are there. So the first one, premillennialism. There are varieties of that. There's historic premill and there's dispensational premill. We don't need to go into those things today. We just ne- merely, unless you want to. But I mean, for the sake of the hearers, we don't need to. What we're really talking about today is two of those positions, and they are. Amill and postmill. Does Christ come back amillennially or postmillennially? So the postmill says the power of the gospel and or politics, economics, law, education, and whatever else is going to usher in the kingdom, the millennium, after which Christ will come back and to rule and reign visibly on the earth. He'll come back to the earth after the church has ushered in the millennium. Amills say this entire time period is the millennium. Christ will come back after it. But the millennium that we're talking about is not characterized by some long golden age where we've taken over the whole planet and law and economics and government and so on. But rather, there's going to be a mix of good and evil all down through the age till, till the Lord comes. Um, so Pastor Sam might want to want to make some uh, slicing and dicing of some of these positions as I'm stating them. But but what we're asking today is why why ah mill not post mill? So post mill is getting popular again. These things wax and wane. Post mills on the ascendance again. It's getting more popular due to certain teachers and so on and the influence they have. There are guys in our church showing up and they're they're wrestling with me like I, I think maybe I'm going post mill. Well, all right, I can imagine worse things for you to happen, but um. Why are we Amil? You and I, Sam, are both Amil. Why are we Amil and not post-mill? So that's our topic for today. Enough setting up. We want to hear you talk. Where would you like to start? Please do. Well, let me let me comment on the terminology amillennialism. Um, my attitude about that terminology is that um, it's true in one sense and not true in another. And you kind of implied this. It's true in one sense uh, because millennium has a certain connotation, a halo meaning. And that halo mm. meaning is great golden age of righteousness, mm. peace, and prosperity. And in that sense, we don't believe in such a great golden age of righteousness, peace, and prosperity before the eternal state. Uh, and so in that sense, we are a millennial. If, if you take the connotation of the word. Good. But the denotation of the word is simply a thousand years. The Bible teaches that there is going to be a thousand years. It's right there in Revelation 20. Whether you interpret it uh, uh, literally or figuratively, it's there. Um, millennials believe the Bible, so they believe in the thousand years. The question is, uh, uh, 
not whether we believe in it, but what it is like. Yes. And we don't think it's like a great golden age of peace, righteousness, and prosperity. So uh, a lot. some guys like realized millennialism. That's fine with me. Mm-hmm. But uh, let me make another comment here. Um, you made a comment that, uh, in one sense, amillennialism is post-millennial. And in, in a certain way, it is. In fact, I say that in End Times Made Simple. Because we believe that Christ comes back after the thousand years that uh, uh, is mentioned in Revelation 20. And so that would make us technically post-millennial. But not post-millennial in the sense of post the great golden age of righteousness, peace, and prosperity. Good. So, um, and let me make a third comment on terminology while I'm on a roll here. Um, uh, When I speak of post-millennialism then, and when I I think it's talked about historically, it does mean that sometime after the period we're living in now, there will be ushered in a great golden age of righteousness, peace, and prosperity, in which basically Christianity will be triumphant in the world. Now, I, that's what I call systematic postmillennialism. And it's with regard to that kind of systematic postmillennialism, and there are varieties of it, that uh, I want to say, no, I, I think the Bible teaches amillennialism. Good, clear. Thank you. So, where, why, why do you believe the Bible teaches amill, not premill, in those senses you've just clarified? Okay. Um, uh, well, I was thinking through this, knowing we we're going to talk about this. Let me give you several reasons, and uh, let me give you the first one. The first one, and foundational for the way I look at these things, the way I think the Bible looks at these things, is Matthew thirteen thirty in the parable of the wheat and weeds. Got my open Bible open right here to that passage. Yes, because there, there the landowner says, uh, the field owner says, uh, of the wheat and the weeds that have been planted in his field, let both grow together to harvest. And the harvest is clearly, as it's explained in the following verses, the second coming of Christ and the judgment at the end of the world. And uh, the assertion of the field owner is that uh, uh, he does not desire the weeds to be rooted up. It gives reasons for that in the parable. He wants the wheat and weeds to grow together. Now, uh, here's the thing. Uh, Christians, Orthodox Christians of a premillennial and postmillennial stripe have had a really difficult time. uh, What's the word I want? Practicing the kind and believing the kind of balance that Jesus teaches here. Premillennialism tends to be fairly pessimistic. Yes. And not all of it, but in a, as a generalization, it's true. Dispensationalism, especially. And so uh, dispensationalism uh, looks at the world, that, and, and you've heard, you everybody you're here has heard it. Everything's getting worse and worse. Evil men will go worse and worse. Uh, we're going to have to suffer tribulation and all of that. And, uh, and so their view is uh, that evil's going to grow, and it's going to wither the wheat. The weeds are hmm. going to grow. It's going to wither the wheat, so that evil is going to be triumphant in the world, and and the uh, and the good seed is going to get uh, uh, stifled by 
the by the evil seed by the weeds. On the other hand, postmillennialists have had a hard time holding these things together because they want to say that if the if the wheat grows, then the inevitable tendency of that is going to be to stifle and to finally uh, shrivel uh, the growth of the growth of evil, the growth of the weeds. But the fact of the matter is that Jesus says, "Let both grow together," and there is a um, there is a deep logic to this because uh, evil. Uh, tends to get worse as it interacts with good. Uh, and good tends to get better as it interacts with evil. There's hmm. development, there's there's maturation, but there's both maturation of good and evil. And it's that balance between the maturation of good and evil and, and not one as opposed to the other growing and the other being shriveled that amillennialists are trying to keep straight in their eschatology. Very good. And that's my first reason for being an amillennialist. <clears throat> the teaching of Christ right there in Matthew 13. Let me read that portion. You referred to it a number of times, but again, in Matthew 13 and verse 30, Jesus says, let both grow together. That's the weeds and the wheat, the people of God and the not people of God. Let both grow together. And for how long will that happen? Until the harvest. And at the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first, bind them into bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. So, yeah, exactly what you're saying. That portrays both growing, and I like the way you put it, that you know, the, they both get stronger, the battle gets more fierce maybe, but they're both, but they're both there. But let me jump ahead, or maybe you're going to go here anyway. So, so some of our uh, post-millennial friends would say, well, we'll read on, read about the mustard seed and the leaven. And of the mustard seed, it says in verse 32, it is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree. So the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. And so they say, there you see, it gets larger. So the good wins, the mustard seed wins. And then they go down to the parable, verse 33, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid three measures of flour till it was all leaven. So they say, there, see, that's post-mill. It's going to take over the world. The whole world will be leavened. Your responses, please. Well, uh, I think it's remarkable that it seems like the Lord placed around the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven in Matthew 13 a couple of bodyguards to prevent just that misunderstanding. Uh, the first bodyguard is the parable of the four soils. And in the parable of the four soils, it's really clear that the seed of the kingdom does not always meet with reception. There's the rocky, there's uh, there's the there's the footpath, so, uh, lack of soil, there's the rocky soil, there's the thorny soil. And and so uh, it seems pretty clear from the parable of the four soils that we're not to think of the of the seed of the kingdom receiving a universally good reception. Hmm, good. That's, that's the one bodyguard. The other bodyguard is, is, the, uh, is the parable of the wheat and weeds that surround the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven. And uh, makes clear that whatever mustard seed and leaven are teaching, and they are teaching an important truth, and I'll get to it in a second, but whatever they're teaching, the mustard seed and the leaven are not teaching that uh, the good's going to triumph over the evil. And here we get to my own understanding of this, in this age. In this age. 
Yeah, the problem with post-millennials is they don't seem to allow the apes to come to count. <laughs> uh, but and and you hear and here at Gary North, uh, he keeps talking about in time and on Earth. Well, I'm sorry, the age to come is in time and on Earth. Mm. I believe in the redeemed Earth, and it takes place in time, the endless time of the age to come, and and uh, and so the triumph of the mustard seed and the leaven uh, is 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 a growing triumph, but that is not consummated until the age to come. And that's when the nations of the world nest in the branches of the, of the fully triumphant kingdom of God. Um, that's when all is leaven. And you'll look for the wicked in the language of Ma- uh, Psalm 37, and you're not going to find him in the world because he's going to be judged and banished. So I really think that, uh, that uh, take, it's true that the mustard seed and leaven teach growth and progress uh but that growth and progress and then finally triumph does not fully come until the age to come so it has seemed to me pastor sam dr sam that uh i don't know which one of those to call you you're both um it it does seem to me that there are other passages we could turn to beyond matthew 13 obviously other passages in the bible speak to these issues and in in a number of those passages uh, things are said that then the interpreter has to decide, wait a minute, is that in this age or is that in the age to come? Is that now or is that after the coming of Christ? And the post mills tend to say, that's now, that's this age, that's going to happen here. And we are mills tend to say, no, that's going to happen then. And so we're looking for, we need interpretive clues, like what you just pointed out to us from the parable of the weeds, to help us sort out, okay, what what is now and what is then? So the parable of the weeds becomes a very important text, maybe a crucial text for yeah. for safely interpreting other passages. Am I onto something here? You absolutely are, uh, but there are lots of other reasons to introduce that kind of qualification uh, into uh, the post millennial re- reading of the parable of the mustard seed and leaven. And if I could go to a second uh, para- para- Let's. Uh, a second one. Uh, maybe you could read for us, Steve, Luke 20, 34 to 36. And then I want to comment on the whole doctrine of the two ages, which I think is really important in this regard. I'll be happy to. I'm almost there, except this is a pretty new Bible and my pages are sticking together. That was Luke 20, 24? Luke, Luke 20, 34 to 36. 34 to 36. 34 down to 36. Here we go. And Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die any more because they are equal to angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. All right, now this is perhaps the classic text, and it's not the only one. There are like 18 mentions of the two ages in the New Testament, explicitly at least one part of it, this age or the age to come. But this is probably the most important text, and it's important because it makes a very clear contrast between this age and the age to come. Hmm. Um, And there are basically four contrasts here. The four contrasts are uh, the sons of this age. Uh, in this age, you have marrying and giving in marriage. But in the age to come, you have no marrying and giving in marriage. In this age, you have death and dying. In the age to come, you have 
no death and dying. In this age, you have sons of God and sons of this age mixed together. Hmm. And it's to be noted, and we'll come back to this, that it speaks of evil men as the sons of this age. Hmm. And then it says, and then it, it uh, says that in this age you have natural men, but in the age to come you have exclusively uh, uh, supernatural men, that is to say uh, resurrected men. Yes. They are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. So you have the good and evil men mixed together in this age, but not in the age to come. And you have natural men in this age, but only resurrected men in the age to come. Now, that's a, a remarkably clear uh, contrast between the two ages. Now, uh, what's so important is that the Bible makes explicitly clear uh, when this age ends and when the age to come begins. And it is, uh, as this passage implies, the whole subject here in the wider context is the resurrection, uh, it is at the resurrection, and the New Testament makes very clear when the resurrection takes place. It is at the second coming of Christ, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15, 2 Thessalonians 2, and on we could go, and Matthew 13. It's interesting that the parable of the wheat and weeds has a similar uh, uh, structure. You have in, in that passage um, good and evil men mixed together in this world, only righteous men in the in the in after the consummation of the age you have you have natural men in this age but in the age to come you have the righteous shining within the glory of the resurrection and Jesus actually alludes there in Matthew 13 to Daniel 12:2 and the resurrection of the righteous predicted there so uh, you have these two ages and that's the structure in which we have to understand biblical eschatology. Now, one of the things that's so really uh, relevant here then for post-millennialism is that phrase, the sons of this age. Hmm. The sons of this age. Um, that's a reference to evil men. Yes. Why are they called the sons of this age? Uh, and, and let me give it to you in a nutshell then. The sons of, what I call the sons of this age is because this age is and always will be an evil age. And throughout the New Testament where this terminology of the two ages is used, this becomes clear um, uh, again and again. Uh, Paul talks about wicked men walking according to the age of this world, hmm. Ephesians 2.2. Paul talks about uh, and not being conformed to this age, but being transformed by the renewing of our minds, Romans 12, 2. Paul talks about the fact that Christ died to deliver us from this present evil age. And on we can go, and there are a number of passages. Paul talks about the fact, uh, the, the, the language of the, of the two ages talks about the fact that in this age, righteous people will experience persecutions. All of this is uh, is really clear, and, and, and it, it certainly directly implies that we ought not to expect anything like a great golden age of peace, righteousness, and prosperity, which uh, would mean that we wouldn't be persecuted as Christians, which would mean that we could be conformed to this age and still be righteous, 
which would mean that we could walk according to the age of this world and be righteous, which would mean that this is no longer a present evil age. Hmm. Uh, all of those things <clears throat> are, are simply highly problematic for, uh, for post-millennialism. It's hard to understand how in their millennium, uh, what the Bible teaches about life in this age will continue to be the case. And that leads to the really difficult and serious uh, conclusion that at some point, all these passages about what life in this age will be like for Christians being filled with persecution, this age being evil, Satan being the god of this age, hmm. all of these things are, 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 are not going to be true in the millennium before Jesus comes back and therefore are, are going to become irrelevant for Christians in terms of what they teach us about our lives. That's a really serious implication. Yes, very good. So Matthew 13 is really helpful. Luke 20, the verses we looked at, really helpful. Are there any other key, important texts you want to take us to? You know, um, yes, there is. And um and this might this may be a little bit strange from some of your viewers' viewpoint, but I want to take us to Revelation twenty. Revelation twenty is, of course, the place where the millennium is mentioned explicitly. In fact, it's the only place where the millennium is mentioned explicitly in the Bible. And what strikes me is that. So, why would this strike people strange? Well, because Revelation twenty a highly is a highly controversial mm -hmm. passage, right? Right. Uh, and so, how am I going to prove anything from Revelation 20? Uh, but, but here's the point. It is not controversial between amills and post-mills. Both, as we pointed out earlier, both amills and post-mills are in certain sense post-millennial and believe that this thousand years is going to end after the little season with the return of Christ, right? Right. So... Um, we can assume that post-mills and on-mills kind of agree about the interpretation of this passage. Now, the question is this, and I, and I think I even think most many post-mills are going to have to agree with this and do actually, but is the thousand years here a reference simply to a great golden age that occupies the second half of this gospel age or something like that? Or is it a reference to the whole gospel age? Well, um, when, uh, when I expound the passage, I make the point that when you ask the question about when Satan was bound, and you answer that question on the basis of the clear passages of the Bible and the other references of the Bible to Satan's binding, um, there is, uh, as opposed to premillennialism, there is no reference anywhere else in the Bible to a future interim binding of Satan. It simply isn't there. If we're going to interpret figurative language in light of an obscure language, in light of more clear language, uh, then we have to go to the other places where the New Testament talks about the destruction of Satan's power, and they all refer to the events of Christ's first advent. Yes. Uh, the binding of the strong men, Matthew 12, by the coming of the kingdom of God, uh, the castings of Satan out of heaven by the preaching of the gospel, uh, the, uh, the uh, reference in John chapter 12 to uh, a Satan being cast down and Christ drawing all men to himself, 
the reference in Hebrews 2 to the destruction of, of the evil one, uh, of the one who had the power of death, the, the, the disrobing or disarming of the evil powers in Colossians 2. First John, Christ appeared to destroy the works of the devil. And then Revelation 12. All of these passages identify the binding of Satan as something that happened as a result of Christ's death and resurrection in his first advent. All of them. Now, uh, I think I, I give I give post-millennialist credit for having uh, at least a similar way of interpreting the Bible as, as uh, millennialists do. And all of that means that the thousand years began with Christ's first advent. And that's a big problem. Because that thousand years then is uh, is not something that can be bifurcated and differentiated in two, two, two distinct periods of time. In fact, modern post-millennialists are trying to evade uh, having to say that. You read Gary North and Rush Dooney and others. They don't want to say that you have this, uh, or even James White, you have this bifurcation of this age. But in fact, if they're going to have any kind of systematic post-millennialism, they have to bifurcate this age. And that's something that uh, both the teaching about the kingdom in Matthew 13 and 1 Corinthians 15 and Revelation 20 just doesn't permit us to do. This age is of a similar character throughout. Good and evil grow together. Throughout. Yes, good. Hey, we're in Revelation 20, so let me ask you to comment. In fact, this is right in line with what you've just been talking about. So we read uh, earlier in the chapter, an angel comes down from heaven. He has a key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. He sees the dragon, verse 2, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And then verse 3 is important. Threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed over him so that, there's a purpose clause, what's yeah. he bound? In what way is he bound? Is he totally bound? He can never do anything anymore? No, it's a limited bound. It's a demarcated bound so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. So prior to the first coming of Christ, all nations, darkness, right? They're all under the power of the devil. And then that changes at the first advent. That changes at the cross so that he might deceive the nations, not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years are ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Later, we read that um, verse 7, and when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. Could you comment on those verses and how they relate to what we're talking about? Sure. Uh, a lot of people, you know, simply smile at you as if you're some sort of hopeless fanatic when you say that Satan is bound right now. Yes. But you've been pointing out the solution to that, uh, that kind of ridicule, and it's this. This is figurative language, and it's speaking of the visionary world of the prophetic dream and vision, and and so we have to we can't we can't uh, you know interpret it and in, with the kind of literalistic uh, views that many people do. What we must do is ask uh, in what sense, in what way, according to this passage, is this binding of Satan taking place? Well, it's clear that he is bound in order to prevent exactly what happens when he's unbound hmm. and, and verses 7 to 10. And, and what happens there? He gathers the nations to a global and concerted effort during a little season at the end of the world to destroy the missionary, uh, uh, the missionary outreach of the church and to destroy the church itself. 
Now, it isn't, that's what happened when he's unbound. And so it's reasonable to think that when he's bound, he is prevented from bringing about that universal attack on the church. And in fact, when we actually look at history and we ask, why in the world didn't Satan, with the mightiest empire he'd ever created, uh, uh, the Roman Empire at his disposal, uh, with that on the one side and 120 hopeless, hopelessly uh, uh, re, uh, weak uh, Christians there in Jerusalem, why didn't he simply wipe them out? Hmm. And the answer is he couldn't because he was bound. So um, I think that uh, this gives a really satisfying answer. And, and of course, if they're going to argue that uh, this passage has to be interpreted in that kind of absolutist kind of way, why don't uh, they interpret Colossians 2, which says that he's disrobed the evil powers, uh, disarmed the evil powers? Uh, are they going to argue, well, the evil powers are still active, therefore that passage can't be referring to the present age? It's ridiculous. And you can do the same thing with other passages like that. Yes. But let me go on to something that I, I think is always uh, uh, maybe an Achilles heel of postmillennialism, and that's this uh, whole issue of the little season at the end. Hmm. Now, uh, some people won't agree with me, and some Amils won't agree with me, but I'm going to tell you what I think this implies, especially taken in conjunction with other passages. I, I think it implies that there will be a focused time of tribulation for the church at the end of the age, after, after the time when Satan is loose. That seems really clear. I don't see how to interpret the passage any other way. I think this is to be paralleled with 2 Thessalonians 2, which talks about the mystery of iniquity already working but being restrained. Hmm. That's interesting. Uh, uh, until until uh, God's time when there is the apostasy or rebellion and the revelation of the man of lawlessness. Personally, I do believe in a future Antichrist, a uh, personal mm-hmm. Antichrist, I, as the leader of this, a uh, human leader of this final world rebellion against Christ. And, uh, but it, it, it's, it's difficult and no matter how much they try to do it, to make that final world rebellion against Christ comport with this great golden age of peace, righteousness, and prosperity. Yes. If if the if the result of the gospel is this great golden age of peace, righteousness, and prosperity, and it's even it's going to be even more power, powerful during that period of time, then what in the world happens that that there's this there's this worldwide apostasy at the end of the time? Hmm. Now. I can deal with that as an amillennialist because to me it says you can't have world apostasy without the worldwide spread of the gospel. And I do believe, in, and I'm an optimistic amill, I believe in the worldwide spread of the gospel and the building of Christ's church throughout the world. But I don't believe that's going to be the only thing that's happening. I think that worldwide spread is going to be associated with and accompanied, accompanied with uh, an increasing hostility on the part of wicked men. Mm-hmm. And the very growth of good is going to lead to the maturation of evil. Now, that makes sense from an amillennial perspective. I think it's hard to make sense of it from a post-millennial perspective. Yeah, amen to that. So 
there are some Old Testament prophetic passages that talk about the days that will come when you know, righteousness covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. And, and post mills are wont to say, yeah, that, that's you know, going to be a little later in this age. So same thing, right? We're, they're putting it in this age. We're saying, no, no, that's in that age. Are there clear markers in the text that help us to locate it? No, it's in that age. Yeah, I think there are. Let me just, let me comment. We have to put all those Old Testament texts to the grid that Jesus Christ gives us in the seven parables of the kingdom. And that grid is basically this. The kingdom comes in two stages. The kingdom comes in two stages. The fulfillment of those passages comes in two stages. They're talking about the kingdom, right? So I think uh, that in all of these passages that post mills are, are want to uh, go to in the Old Testament, uh, there are clear markers. Uh, so there are, there are basically two principles, Steve. Um, the one principle is, uh, well, maybe maybe three. The, 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 one, the first is the two kingdom, uh, the, the, the two stages coming of the kingdom that Jesus, this is the whole point of the parables of the kingdom to teach that two-stage grid that we have to put these prophecies through. The second thing is uh, these passages are all prophecy, which in the language of Numbers 12 is different than theophany, different than the New Testament clear revelation. Uh, They're dark sayings. And so we have to appreciate that they're figurative and that they're dark sayings, they're visions and dreams, and, and so trying to interpret them in some sort of straightforward, literal way is simply wrong. The third thing is, I think that's the explanation for a lot of the things that Post Mills point to. They, they're taking stuff that's intended in a highly figurative fashion and interpreting, literal, interpreting it literally, opposed to the very uh, teaching of the Old Testament that prophecy is dark sayings and figurative. The third thing is, when you go to the New Testament, whether you're talking about Isaiah 65 or the prediction of the new temple and Ezekiel 40 to 48, or you're talking about, yeah, if you're talking about parallel passages to Isaiah 65 uh, that talk about the, the lamb and the wolf lying down together. These, these things are all marked by statements that can only be true of a perfect eternal state and are not true. Uh, of uh, imperfect millennium. Hmm. Very good. So um, some of our hearers might want to read more. They can read your book, The End Times Made Simple. Are there some other books you would recommend for you know for the layman, for the average reader? I'm really glad you asked that question, Steve. Uh, well, first of all, I always assign in my classes uh, Anthony Hookham as the Bible in the future. It's a great, mm-hmm. it's a great treatise on this subject. Uh, he did a great job with the book. I also want to say that uh, uh, I like Kim Riddlebarger's stuff, both on the Antichrist and on amillennialism a great deal. Um, and then I also want to say, uh, if I can do a shameless plug here, I'm hoping to publish in the next few months uh, the Doctrine of Last Things and op- Optimistic Amillennial View, which is going to take all the fragments of stuff that are in my other books and bring them together in a systematic treatment of eschatology. And I'm really hoping um, uh, to get a publisher and to get that published here in the next few months. People want to come to CuffCon, our, our seminary conference, 
next March, they may even get a free copy of it. We'll see. <laughs> Pretty good. All right. So you're hoping that's coming out soon. I'm glad you're doing that. Um, and on what level is that? Is that for the popular reading audience? Is that scholarly? Is that for seminary students? It's about on the same level as End Times Made Simple, All right. but it's just the more systematic and I think uh, logical treatment of things. Here's one of the things I like about it too, is that I've I've begun to introduce all my classes on eschatology by by basically saying two things. Um, is eschatology, asking the question, is eschatology optional? And I argued, no, um, while there are questions that Christians may disagree about, uh, you have to hold the orthodox core to be a Christian. You have to hold second coming, resurrection, and judgment. Yep. To be a Christian, yep. right? So I argue, I argue that, and then I say, now, well, what are the orthodox options? And I say, as you began the program with, the dispensationalism, historic premillennialism, amillennialism, postmillennialism, all hold that orthodox core. Mm-hmm. They're not equally biblical or equally confessional. I'm not saying that, but I, I am saying they all hold the orthodox core, and. Uh, and so when we talk about the issues of, of, of uh, pre-mill, post-mill, ah-mill, pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, whatever, uh, we have to treat each other like Christians because other people hold the orthodox core. True. Yes. You know, it's interesting, though. There are people who are dispensational pre-mill, and they'll show up at our church. And I was one of them, by the way. When I became a believer, I was sent right off to Washington Bible College heavily Dallas Theological Seminary-oriented theology. We read the Dallas professor's books and so on, Walverd, Ryrie, Pentecost, all those guys. And so I was dispensational pre-mill, but then it started cracking up pretty soon. The more I read the Bible, I thought, this isn't working. But anyway. Yeah, um, it was then. Yes. So uh, oh, now I forget where I was going. So you can do that when you're 69, by the way. Don't do that when you're 23, but I can get away with it. I'm 69. So um, where was I going with that? Well, let me, while you're thinking, let me just comment. I was raised in uh, a, a dispensational church. I knew the system by the time I was 12. Hmm. One of the things that irritates me is when I see dispensationalists contradicting themselves, uh, but and and contradicting the system that I and I know they're being inconsistent because I knew the system. Because I was there. Yeah, I I do remember where I was going. So uh, so a, a lot of premillennial dispensationalists hold the other views as highly suspect. Like yeah. they might not view you as equally sound in the word because you're not interpreting the word literally and so on. And and uh, I, I think that got its founding in some of the, so during the 1920s, let's say, the fundamentalist modernist controversy when the mainline denominations were cracking up because German higher criticism seeped in and so on. Um, the, the true believers were looking for each other, and they found each other at Bible conferences. Yeah. Uh, so you had people of different stripes coming to Bible conferences. And by historical accident, in the providence of God, it just so happened that a lot of the teachers that rose to prominence in those Bible conferences out in the tents with the sawdust on the floor and all that, a lot of those teachers were dispensational pre-mill. And they said, if you don't interpret the Bible, the eschatological portions, with wooden literalness, then you, you're, you're not safe. You don't hold to a sound view of the Bible. 
And that whole idea lives on into our day, Sam, because I experience people showing up at our church, and when they find out I'm not dispensational pre-mill, and I don't toe the line on those things, oh, man, you guys are suspect. You, know, you got, yeah. We, we got to flee this place. Yeah. Do you uh, do you see that at your church, and does that still exist where you are? Well, yeah, I can't see. We've, uh, I've seen it in a few years, and over the last few years in terms of um, – not so much at our church now, but uh, um, maybe we have a reputation and that we, <laughs> we're standing out and people don't show up. But but I will say this. Yeah, the, 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 the view is, look, if you don't take, you got to take the whole Bible literally. If you don't take Revelation literally, then you might not take Genesis literally. Right. And that means you're liberal. Well, okay, but the problem is that it's, it's simply indisputable that some parts of the Bible are intended literally, and some parts of the Bible are intended figuratively. Yes, you really think there is a dragon with seven heads and ten horns there, or whatever it was, yeah. ten heads and seven horns. I don't know. <clears throat> uh, in Revelation 13, as you really think there's uh, the the four beasts uh, of Daniel 7 are are running wild over the earth literally, you got to take those passages yeah. figuratively. Just so as is it, Jesus a door? Does he have wooden parts and you know <laughs> raised panels that float and whatever? That's right. And so uh, that kind of uh, sim- simplicity uh, is simplisticness, and we can't we can't go there. Um, okay, so let's just be clear. I take the Book of Revelation primarily figuratively; it's apocalyptic language, and mm-hmm. I take the Book of Genesis. Of course, it contains figures of speech. But primarily, literally, and especially Genesis one to eleven. Amen. So, uh, and everybody has to take parts of the Bible figuratively. They may not want to admit it. They want may uh. want to gush around it, but they have to take parts of the Bible figuratively. And so, this argument: if you don't take it all literally, wherever possible, well, you know that old dictum is simply false. Because with God, anything is possible, so it doesn't work. Yeah, absolutely. Amen to that. I'm going to draw this to a close. This has been really great. Thank you for joining me in this time. And uh, you want to give us just a quick summary. Here's, uh, you know, the uh, the Cliff Notes version of Dr. Sam's teaching on eschatology. Why should we be uh, amil and not post-mill? <laughs> we should be amil because uh, uh, that's what Revelation 20 leads directly to. Should be our mill because of the doctrine of the two ages and the fact that this age ends with the second coming of Christ. And until that happens, this age is and always will be an evil age. And we should be our mill uh, because uh, the Bible teaches that until the harvest, both good and evil are going to grow together, mature together. One, neither of them is going to wipe out the other in the way that postmillennialism teaches. Yeah, very good. Very clear. Thank you so much for that. Hey, make before we go, make yourself one last shameless plug for your upcoming book, would you? What is it again? Uh, right now it's entitled, understand it's not published yet, but yeah. it's called The Doctrine of Last Things, An Optimistic Amillennial View. Very good. So they should look for it, Dr. Sam Waldron. Yeah, sometime, uh, I hope, by the first of the year. Great. Well, I hope that comes out by then, too. And when I think of you, I'll pray for that very thing. Thank you for joining me today. This has been Grounded. I'm Steve Hartland, again, pastor at Cornerstone Community Church in Joppa, Maryland. If you live nearby, come and join us. And if you're liking this podcast, well, feel free to share it with a friend and give us some likes or comments. Thank you very much for doing so. Thanks for joining us today.